Now, speaking of being a parent, um, this was one of those weeks that was kind of interesting for me. I, I, for summer, it, vacation was over. We've been getting up earlier in my house. And so it kind of builds on you where you get more and more exhausted throughout the week. Anybody know what I'm talking about? And then on Friday, my kids, um, my wife took off in the evening. She went to Second Fridays, which was awesome. I heard a lot of good stuff being told about our missionaries and things that are going on. And so she went to visit that. In the meantime, I had the kids at home. And uh, my son, Andrew, who's five, he hadn't been sleeping good either. And so he was a little exhausted. And when a five-year-old gets exhausted, he, everything is wrong in their life. You know what I'm talking about? And so I understand that now, but I'm tired too. And so what happens is it's time for bed. Actually, it's past the time for bed, which is bad enough. And I tell him, okay, go upstairs. I'm trying to get him to sleep in the same room just for fun. Hey, you guys, maybe Bubba will let you sleep in your room. And Andrew looks at me. He's going like, Bubba won't let me sleep in his room. He starts crying and falling apart. Suddenly Bubba goes, no, no, it's okay. You can sleep in my room. You know, changes the story. And finally they all lay down. I make him a tent. Bubba's upset about the tent. I say, relax. You don't have to worry about the tent. I'm going to clean it up in the morning. No, and so I'm downstairs trying to finally focus a little bit, and down comes Andrew. I can't sleep. My bottom's itchy. Oh, great. So now we're working through that whole problem, and then I have fixed that problem, and he's still crying and still whining, and by that point, my daddy meter, has, my daddy patience meter was gone because I was tired, and I'm sitting there doing the bad daddy thing, which hopefully... God willing, you understand some of this. I'm sitting there going, I want to strangle you and go to bed. And just like my veins are popping out. And Andrew's like, ah, and I'm, ah, and we're just this mess. All this to say, I fear one day in counseling that when my children are sitting there, they will look at the counselor and said, what right did my parents have to judge us and lead us? I don't understand. They were as messed up as we are. Why in the world did God put those people over me? You know, that, that kind of thing. And, and I'll be honest, thank God I'm a Bible scholar, so I know the answer to that question when they deliver it to me. And that is, God put me in charge, I'm your parent. Amen? End of story. <laughs> but that doesn't float well when you're the husband trying to claim, look, the Bible made me in charge of the house. We're like, uh-huh, sure, buddy. That doesn't mean you get to watch all the programs you want all the time. I get the controller sometimes. Do whatever. We really naturally do struggle when God places people in authority over us, especially as Americans, right? It frustrates us. It it gets under us a little bit, let alone our parents get to tell us what to do, but they're just as messed up as we are. That's actually the very argument of frustration that Habakkuk has, not about parents, but about another scenario. See, Habakkuk existed in 600 BC. He was a man living in a time period of great corruption. They just had a revival. Another king had come in and he was gone. A third king had stepped up and his corruption was so huge that he had brought false idols into the kingdom, into the, into the temple itself. He was not giving justice. People were being killed. Violence was being laid out. And last week we looked at Habakkuk as he yelled at and screamed at God in his prayer time, why in the world is this happening? Don't you even care? And God says, yes, I do. Here's how much I care. I'm going to judge all of it in your nation. And that made the back kind of go like, oh, really? And he's, yes, and I'm going to use the Babylonians. In fact, he describes the Babylonians as these men who would come out of nowhere, sweeping down, taking away all these homes and cities and villages, uh, disrupting everything. Verse 11, actually, of Habakkuk chapter 1 reads this way. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose own might is their God. And it's that line that hinges us into Habakkuk's next problem. He's like, wait a minute. These guys are proud because they're mighty. These guys think they've got to figure it out because they are the ones who have all the strength. They're arrogant. They're guilty. What right do they have to judge us, God? Just like the children looking 
at teachers or us looking at our bosses. What right do they have to judge us, God, is the very problem that Habakkuk gets into. And so I'd invite you to open your Bibles up to Habakkuk chapter 1. We're going to kind of begin to examine this. Habakkuk 1, and we're, if you can't, Habakkuk's found in a, a section of his text called the Minor Prophets. It's in the back half of your Old Testament. So you could probably open it in the halfway point of your Bible and go right, and you'll go through a bunch of weird names, and Habakkuk's right in the middle of those. If you're in normal names like Mark, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, go left, and you'll, you'll kind of come into that area. Otherwise, you know, you've got the Bibles under the seats in page 785, or you've got your phone. You can just pull up Habakkuk right now and join with us. And what we want to do is we want to explore Habakkuk's complaint today. Habakkuk's complaint is pretty normal. It's our objection too. And many times we can object to God, God, I I care that you're just, but I don't like how you're bringing about your justice. I'm objecting to this. And this is exactly Habakkuk's problem. He says, verse 12, are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my holy one? We shall not die. And we'll pause right there real quick because I got to make an issue of translation. Um, We're pretty sure that the uh, scribes, the Hebrew scribes in translating this actually shifted it for a reason. They didn't like the the idea of God and death being together. And so it's the likely reading of this is, you shall not die, speaking to the Lord, saying, you shall not die. And, And basically saying, God, you're immortal. You exist forever. And this fits the context because he's saying, are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One, you shall not die. You are immortal. O Lord, you have ordained them as judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. In other words, he's looking at God and he's saying, God, I get it. You're immortal. You're the Rock. You never change. You are the, you are the solid one, and you have every right to choose our judgment. And you chose these guys. I get it. I'm cool. You, you have the right to pick out whoever you want to pick out. But then he gets into his, his problem. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? How can you look at these Babylonians marching and killing all these people? These guys are the wicked. They're horrible. And they're going to judge us? We're more righteous than they are. We've got this down better. We're better people than they are is what he's saying. What's going on? How can they judge us? This is a mess. God, what are you doing? And maybe we haven't felt that before, but, and maybe that sounds arrogant for him to say that, but they were looking around the world. They're like, hey, we're God's people. Hey, God's taken us out. He selected us out. He, he should be saving us, not judging us with these people. We should be judging them. Isn't this how it's supposed to work? The righteous people, those who are good, ought to be able to set the laws and the rules over other people. And yet that's exactly our struggle. Later in another book, many centuries later, a man named Paul would write these verses about how you could be saved and all this stuff. And then he dives into this one thing. He says in Romans chapter 13, verse 1 through 3, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you'll realize his approval. Now, we read this, and we go like, yeah, you're supposed to support your government. And we go, wait, does this count for the people in Syria who are under Assad? Does that count there? Well, of course it does. It's what God said. He said he set up all the authorities. It doesn't give you like segments of people. It doesn't count. In communist nations, it counts there. 
Did it count with Hitler? Does it count when we don't like our president or our Congress doesn't work the way we want? Or, or when you're sitting in front of judges who have more corrupt lives than we do, and we're like, you get to judge us? What's going on here, God? Isn't this the same problem Habakkuk's looking at? God, what are you doing choosing these leaders like this? They're less righteous than we are. Maybe you're a non-Christian in this room today. You come to church because somebody invited you, and you're thinking, yeah, I think that about Christians. Who made you guys the God and, and judge over us? Why do you guys get to judge us? I mean, I've seen your lives. I think I know who you are. Why would God put you guys over us? Same problem. This is exactly what Habakkuk's getting at. He's really frustrated with, God, how do these people get to judge us? It makes it even worse as he goes on with his complaint. Not only is he confused about God's judgment, then in the next verses, he goes into a deeper problem. He's like, not, not only, God, how can they judge us, but how can you play with, with these guys? How can you use these guys? Verse 14 begins, you make mankind like the fish of the sea. So it's a, it's a il- fishing illustration. Like crawling things that have no ruler, he brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnets and he rejoices and is glad. Therefore, he sca- sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet. For by them, he lives in luxury and f- his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? So here's the thing. you got these men who have marched in. They're taking over all this stuff. And it's as if the people are fish in the sea. And they're running around with their, with their fishing rod. Now, this is, my, this is my fly rod. It's long enough that if you're asleep, I can whack you. No. But it, it, I've taken this on a couple trips up, into, um, up in the eastern Sierras. And it's been a really good fishing rod. It's pretty easy, I guess, to fish up there because we were up there. And next thing we know, we're like, just cast it and catch, cast it and catch, cast it and catch. And I've been told that's not normal. But, I mean, my brother-in-law caught 22. The first time I went out with this thing was 11. I was just like, man, this is awesome. It's like you can't fail. Fat, throw it out there, boom, you caught something. Throw it out there, boom, you caught something. That's what it felt like. And what was interesting is that's exactly what the Babylonians were feeling like. Oh, this is easy. We march up to a city, whack, we take them down. We march up to another, whack, we take it down. Oh, we've got all this opportunity. Look at this. This is how awesome. It's like throwing a net into the ocean, just dragging it along. You pull it up and you got everything you ever wanted. And that's exactly what Habakkuk is saying is, God, why would you do this? Because then you know what they do? They go home and they set their pole down and they look at it and say, oh, fishing pole, oh, fishing pole, how lovely. And they're just singing songs to it. They're bowing down to it. They're sacrificing animals to it. As if it does anything at all. And Habakkuk's going, God, why would you indulge their false belief? Why would you give in to this this viewpoint that somehow they're powerful, that their pride is their God, and they're able to do this? And this is what he's saying. Look at verse 17. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? Is he supposed to keep on getting away with it? Even though this is their false view of themselves, what is going on? And it's right there that it hits the nub. Imagine sitting there as a Jewish man or woman in Nazi Germany or as a person who's hiding Jews and looking around at Nazi Germany going, I'm supposed to submit to this guy? How is this supposed to work? What's going on here? In the 1930s and the early 1940s, it looked like Germany was impossible to stop. And they had marched into Czechoslovakia. They would taken over Holland. They were marching down and, and, about, and taking out France. And, I mean, these guys were moving across the nations, swallowing them up. And here was Hitler telling them all how amazing they were, how powerful they were, and how they were the chosen race and all this stuff. And everybody was eating it up because it was working. 
Don't you think some Christians were sitting around going, God, what are you doing? Giving into their own belief system. What are you just letting them have this for? That's Habakkuk's second objection. And this week and next week, we'll cover off on how God answers these objections. But this is the problem. When we struggle with how can they judge us and how can you let them believe that? We need those answers. We need to be careful about how we answer those. You see, it's one thing for us to stand there and go, God, how in the world can you let them judge us? God, how in the world can this go on? You can ask that question, but the danger is to let your heart judge God in the middle of it. Where you go, God, how can you let this happen? What's your problem? That's not Habakkuk's heart. Notice chapter 2, verse 1. Actually, what Habakkuk is going to get into is something different. He says, I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. In fact, what he moves into and he states, if I can get the next slide, please. He says, we need to be patient and seek for God's answers. This is different than how we normally approach our questions. See, he starts with Habakkuk describing himself on his watch post. He says, I will take my stand at my watch post, station myself on the tower. He says, I'm a watchman. I'm a guy who's going to stand and observe and look out. And, and it's important that we note this. We don't have watchmen, really. We have computers that do our watching. We have, you know, you've got your computer virus, um, you know, watcher constantly doing its little checks and looking out. That's what a human being did in the ancient days. They would stand on the wall and everybody could see them. And their sole job was to stand there for their time period to look out into the horizon for any dangers that were approaching and to yell and alert everybody whether they were to shut the gates, get the armaments ready or whatever. That was their job. Now, can you imagine? That sounds like a rad job. You saved everybody's lives until... One day goes by and nobody comes, and two days go by and nobody comes, and ten days go by and nobody comes, and two years go by and nothing happens, and all you do is get up there and keep watching. Get up there and keep watching. I've heard of men who stand out in the middle of New Mexico guarding a very large area, and they've never seen anything happen in their entire year of watching people. You know how hard it is to be diligent in those cases, to not just bust out the cards and start sitting around like, yeah, yeah, no, is there, okay, yeah, figures. And yet what Habakkuk is saying is when he stood up and he asked this question, he expected God to answer. But he was going to have to be like a watchman. He was going to stand there and wait. He was going to expectantly see it. He was going to be patient for it. And he was going to be diligent in his watching. Let me just talk to you for a minute if you're a questioner. If you're somebody who likes to ask questions, if you're somebody who hasn't bought into this Christianity thing completely yet, or you're at the beginning of your faith and you've got a lot of questions, let me talk to you about how to ask questions. It's important that you ask questions. At Olive Branch, one of the things we want to encourage you to do is ask good questions. Everybody at every phase has questions. I still have questions. And that's good. But it's how you approach your question that's most important. You see, we need to approach our questions with a consideration of asking in trust. See, he comes trusting God's going to answer. He sits expecting a reply. He doesn't get up there and go like, oh, this is going to take a while. Because there is no answer, God. I already know this. I'll tell you, I've sat down with many, many people over the years. People who have genuine questions. People who are really curious about the faith. And yet somewhere in the middle of it, they get caught into guiding their questions as more like a, a, a statement. So they'll ask questions like, okay, so how can God, all this evil exist and God still be good? And I'll start answering the question, which is a very long answer. And about two sentences in, oh yeah, well, what about this? And a couple more sentences, oh yeah, well, what about that? 
couple more. Oh, yeah, well, what about this? And I'm just going to tell you, if that's you and you're a question asker, you need to be genuine in asking your question. Because answers, when it comes to truth, cannot be tweeted. You can't send a tweet of an answer out when it comes to deep questions. It's impossible to answer the real questions of life that simply. Say, really? Yeah, because if you could contain all the knowledge of God in simple tweets, you've got too small of a God. God has explored forever and ever. The exploration and the knowledge of him grows as you deepen and deepen, more questions will appear. But your faith and the answers that you've received will grow stronger and stronger as all these things connect together. The problem is how many people have come in arrogantly to ask a question versus to truly seek. And Habakkuk's heart is not to come to God arrogantly and go, okay, God, your problem, you need to answer this to me now because I'm the judge of you. No, that's not how this works. He comes ensured that God is who he is. He knows who he is, and he expects a reply back. And so he says, and he comes and trusts that God will answer. The second thing is we seek answers and trust, not an outright arrogance. We don't assume we know the answer before we ask it. One of the problems, the other problems here is that how many times have we seen somebody come with that arrogance disguised and trying to act like questioners, but really they've got a foregone conclusion already because they Googled their question and they already have their answer. They watch the Discovery Channel and they never lie. I mean, watch your source. Everybody trusts something. We get laughed at as Christians because we trust the scriptures as the infallible source. Yet I'll meet many people who trust the internet or their television far more than they trust the Bible. And this has been tested for thousands of years. And so this is an interesting reality. When we come with our questions, I want to know two things. Do you come with humility, willing to admit you might be wrong, Christian or not? Do you come from your position in theology with humility, willing to say, I may be wrong? Do you approach, secondly, with the willingness to seek a conversation with one of my friends, or actually my brother-in-law, as he was trying to talk to people at his workplace. And as we go through this, he, he just leaned over to me and said, you know, the bottom line is when they get into, we get into this, people are just lazy. They'll ask the question, turn around and go watch TV rather than actually seek out an answer. Is that us? Do you ask a question and expect it just to drop into your lap? Or do you realize that God longs for you to use your mind to seek, to grow? That the answers may may be entire books that you have to read. And that doesn't come on a simple gotcha website. And the reality is that God's asking you, do you trust me? Are you willing to seek? Are you willing to be a watchman on the wall waiting for the answer, awaiting that day and when it comes, seeking it diligently and not willing to give up? Because it shows how genuine you are as a seeker. Versus how confident you are that you're right. It's important that we watch that. And I'm not trying to push too hard. The reality is that everybody in this room, Christian or not, needs to be genuine in our humbleness of our seeking, of our questions. And that's what Habakkuk does for us right here. He says, I'm a watchman on the wall. I'm waiting to see how God will answer. He's not being arrogant. And so he does. He actually receives his answer in chapter 2, beginning in verse 2. And his answer is interesting. It really kind of boils down to, hey, when you don't fully understand everything, you need to simply just trust, live in trust. And you say, well, well, how's this work? Well, let's take a look real quick. Verse 2, he says, And the Lord answered me, Write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so that he may run who reads it. In other words, the guy who reads it can go out and clearly explain it to somebody else, or two, so that your eyes can run quickly over it, and you can pull in the meaning quickly. Either one counts, and that's kind of a debate in, in how you interpret it, but both work. So, for still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. 
If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. This is important. What he gets into is he starts with this. Hey, look, I get that it may not look like it's going to happen now. I get that it may not look like it's going to launch and boom, land in your lap. There's some waiting here. There's some tension involved as you wait for your answer. But trust it's going to come. Trust God can and does indeed answer. See, I'm going to make it plain. I'm going to show it off. But what I want you to do is I want you to wait for it. I love that term. Wait for it. I get it too. You know what? I mean, it happened this morning. My wife just told me it's showing up. The same scenario happened that's been happening all month long. My children obviously were born and raised in a drought in Southern California. Because they came downstairs on the coldest day, on the rainiest day of the week, and they got shorts, and they got short sleeve shirts on, and they've got, like, they're ready for their flip-flops. They're like, we're ready for school, Dad. I'm like, no, you're not. Get upstairs, put on some long pants, and put on a, a long sleeve shirt. It's cold outside. I'm not cold. That's always the response. I didn't say you were cold. I said it's cold outside. And if you're outside long enough, you're going to get sick. Go get a jacket. It's itchy. I don't want to. I'm fine. I know. Yes, you know what you're talking about, four-year-old. You know, it's kind of like. <laughs> but the reality is they, they're so confident, so sure. And I'm just like, I want to, after, after this wanting to strangle you, sensation goes away. I, I lean over to the, everything in me. I just want to look and say, would you just trust me? that I know a little bit more about cold weather than you do. You live in a drought. Can you trust me? You're gonna get sick. Wait for it. Do you hear God's words? Don't you trust me? My words, don't you think I know a little bit more about this thing called life and reality since I made it? Trust me. My word is true. It's not going to fail. It's not going to wait on it. It's going to come and happen when it needs to happen. Just wait for it. You're going to get sick. And God nails us. He says, trust me, do we? Do we really trust that his word is giving us the answer, even though it's not immediate, microwave level, internet instantaneous, it's, it's long distance from an eternal God who's been around a lot longer than instantaneous? The God works in a slow, transformative fashion in the fast, immediate. And he says, trust me. And you know what? I'll be honest, there are places where I have a hard time trusting him. I grew up in the generation that said it's the end of the world. Anybody else there with me? Man, 88 reasons in 1988. Whoa, no 89. You know, it's like, whoa. It's an entire series on why the end of the world is going to happen and how you can interpret it and what's going to happen, when it's going to happen, and bam! And I'm going like, wow, okay, it's the end of the world. Anybody remember Y2K? I had friends like huddled up, like scared with guns. They're like, it's going to, everything's going to go, it's going to the end of the world. And I'm like, whoa. And, you know, 2001, it's the end of the world, I swear. And right now, everybody's like, it's the end of the world. And you know what I think as, a, as your pastor, here's the problem. I go, yeah, right. Because I went to college, and guess what I found out? It was in 300 AD, they said, it's the end of the world. Everybody was all ready for the end of the world because Diocletian was killing the Christians, and this must be the Antichrist. And then it didn't happen, and then in 600, they all said, it's the end of the world because they had some calculation. 1000 AD, all the churches rushed outside at midnight expecting Jesus to return because he comes exactly at the end of the millennium to establish his thousand-year reign. And everybody's standing there, and Jesus didn't show up. And then they all thought it was going to come in the Reformation. Oh, we're going to set up a thousand-year reign of Jesus. It's going to be awesome. And it didn't happen. 
And all the Americans came over and said, we are the city on the hill. God's going to bring about the end of the world through us. And it's going to be great. And it's going to be awesome. And all these people said in 1840 this and in 1940 that. In 1940s, everybody's like, Hitler's the Antichrist. It's the end of the world. It didn't happen. So excuse me if I'm a little jaded. It doesn't mean I don't teach prophecy, and it doesn't mean I don't believe that Jesus is going to come back. It just simply means that, really? We're going to try to say it again? I think he said you don't know the hour or the day. Isn't that true? Now, that being said, however, I'm not new. In fact, he calls us to trust him when he says, regardless of our emotions, regardless of what we heard, and we need to wait for it. In Second Peter, this is where we get this after Habakkuk. Peter says, they will say, where's the promise of his coming? Forever since the fathers fell asleep. All things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. That's not like my complaint. Oh, yeah. Sure, he's coming back. Sure, today. Okay. Now, hold on. Peter's about to sock me in the nose, right? He gives a little bit of explanation about your days and thousand years and stuff like that. And he goes, but the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises. Some count slowness. But is patient toward you. Not wishing that any should perish. But that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And the heavens will pass away with a roar. And the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. And the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Doesn't matter your opinion, Greg, what you've experienced. My word still stands firm. Trust me. Wait for it. Teach it faithfully. Wait for it. God is still faithful regardless of what I think. Why is he so slow then? What's going on? Why, why do you have to tell me that if it seems slow, wait for it. It'll surely come. It will not delay because he says, look, he's got a reason. And maybe you've doubted this and you use this as an argument why you're not a Christian because look at all these things God said he would do and he hasn't shown up. Do you know he's probably waiting for you? That what he's actually doing is he's waiting for us to realize that he is not ready to judge us. That he has given out grace through his son Jesus Christ. What's grace? It's a gift. That Jesus was willing to bear our sin. And sin is just injustice that we've committed. The balance of scales of justice are off. And God will not allow that. He must settle it. He must right it. And the only way to do that, to forgive us, is that Jesus righted it for us. If you're willing to receive it. Otherwise, you will deal with your own justice and judgment. And the scales will be righted for you in the day of judgment. But God's not wanting that to happen. He's waiting for that day. And he's being patient because maybe he wants you just turn and receive his gift of his son, Jesus Christ, to bear your sins so you don't have to experience hell. Sure, hell doesn't look like it's going to happen. That'll never happen. Wait for it. And maybe we need to deal with it today. What's interesting is that begins to birth something else. Wouldn't you start with that trust that God can handle the day of judgment, that you can start handling that you, his word is true? He moves on to tell us one of the most famous verses in all the Bible. In fact, an entire book, Exegy, explains this entire passage. Verse 4, look at it with me. Behold, his soul, speaking of Babylon or the unrighteous, is puffed up. It's not upright within him, but the righteous, those who are right with God, those who have a good relationship with him, those who know him and experience his presence, this is the righteous. They shall live by his faith. 
A righteous shall live by faith is what it says. They live according to not laws and works and good, but by faith. And so suddenly there's this, this verse that says, you have to trust me. In fact, don't just trust me once. Live in the faith. Walk in that faith. Exist every day trusting God. You see, here's the secret. Christian or not, we all live by faith. The question is, what do you put your faith in? Everybody here trusts something. Like I said, you trusted History Channel, or you trust the internet, or you trust some professor who had 30-year-old information from the 1970s when he got his doctorate because you had his class, or you trust your parents because this is what they told you, and that was passed down from their generation, their generation, their, you trust your pastor to tell you the truth, all that stuff. This is all part of our trust game. Everybody has trust in something. Everybody lives in faith. The question is, what do you put your faith in? And God says, here's how I know you've put your trust in me, that you have received Jesus Christ who has borne your sins. This is what I've said. Here's my line of trust. Do you trust me for your salvation? Do you trust me for your entry into heaven? Do you trust me for your judgment? Starts there. And from there, you live every day trusting God, trusting him when your kids die, trusting him when you've got cancer, trusting him when you wake up in the morning and the world is unalterably different because a power outage happened and nothing's on anymore, trusting him because the greatest conspiracy theory in the planet occurred and you didn't realize it was true, trusting him when all things are great and you got a huge raise and that mean boss is finally gone or whatever you find that you are in, you trust him, good or bad. It's God, this is yours. I surrender. Your kingdom come. Your will be done, not mine. Who do you trust? See, when we trust Christ, He gives us the guarantee of eternity that we're right with God. He comes into our life and now we can live and not trust every single day and we are right with God. The righteous live by faith. See, that's great, Greg. That's cool. We got to trust God while we're waiting for the answer. What does that have to do with, hey, why do they get to judge us? How is God answering Habakkuk's question? Our struggle with these, these people get to judge us. What's up with that? The answer would come by him waiting. Unfortunately, for Habakkuk, it was 600 years later. When one man walked on this planet who truly was righteous, never broke his relationship with God, walked in perfection, and one day that righteous man was suddenly judged by the wicked. And in that wickedness of those who get to judge him, he had every right to stand there. He said, I could call a thousand angels. And Jesus stood there and said, though I'm the righteous one and you're the wicked, I'll let you judge me. And our judgment sent him to a cross. Why would God allow the unrighteous to judge the righteous? Because first of all, there are none of us who are righteous. No, not one. And we've all judged the only righteous one, which was Jesus. And in that very act of judging him, God said, no, I'm not going to condemn you. I'm going to flip it for your salvation. I'm going to bury your, right, your wickedness. I'm going to take it. And all that unrighteousness that you've given me, I'm going to flip it and I'm going to set you free from judgment if you'll trust me. That's what we've received. That's the promise that was given to Habakkuk. That's what if he, he saw when it was waited for. How can they judge us? Anytime you think that, let it be a reminder that we judge Jesus and that that is the gospel. That by allowing the unrighteous to judge the righteous, 
God set about the salvation for all of us who have no right judging each other because God is judge. And he has set us for free through his son. So live trusting him. Live by faith. And if you're struggling, wait for it. It's coming. It's coming. We'll deal with his other objection next week. But guys, God is that good. They would love us with this kind of love and give us that. So let's, let's bow our heads together. You may be in this room and you've had those questions and you've come with an open, honest heart of seeking. You're ready to um, take and ask right now that God would forgive you. That gift is available and if that's you right now, that you're ready to receive that gift that God gave to make justice and set you free. You're but just a simple reception away. It says if you will simply receive him, he'll, he'll forgive you of your sins. Maybe right now it's time to receive him. If you need to get right with God and receiving him as son for the forgiveness of sins, then I want you to do something for me. Just let me know by putting your hand up just so I can see it. Amen. And then what you get to do is you can talk to God. God hears your mind. He hears your heart. He hears your thoughts. Just talk to him right there. And the first move is just confession. You just kind of tell him what you know you've done wrong. Doesn't have to be perfect, he knows, but he just sees that your heart is open to confess. As you work through that process, the next move is really to do what's called repentance, where you're turning away, you're saying, God, I'm turning away from that stuff and I'm coming to you. Ask him to take all that sin and put it on Jesus, who is willing to take it for you, and thank him that he's forgiven you. Now ask him to come into your life, to give you that new life, to to enable you to live in this world with him in faith and lead you all the way home and to heaven. God, I lift up our, just this church, Olive Branch, ask that you would help us to be a people who are faithfully after you, trusting that you have given us everything that we need for life and godliness, that you've given us what we need to be right with you and enter into heaven. Thank you, God, that you would give us this great gift. Thank you for these new brothers and sisters who have given their their life to you today. We ask that you would bless them and that you would lead us from here. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. All God's children said, amen.